Richard Sibbs was born in 1577 and he lived until 1635. He was born in uh, Suffolk uh, into a very Puritan old England. And he was baptized uh, there in the Suffolk uh, uh, church uh, at Thurston and and began school. And by the time he was in school, he was in love with books. As a matter of fact, his dad, Paul, uh, was a hardworking man's man, a wheelwright by trade, and tried his best to get Richard to give up books for tools. Matter of fact, he started giving Richard tools based on the fact that Richard would give him books. And uh, so he was trying to convince his son that he was wasting his his talents and his life and his energy uh, giving himself to books. But uh, Richard Sibbs continued to study. He applied himself. You children who are here, we have uh, our young, some of our younger ones here with us. Um, this is a man who applied himself as a hardworking man of the Lord. And it paid dividends throughout the centuries. Uh, one of his uh, contemporary biographers, Zachary Caitlin, wrote of him that he was a good, sound-hearted Christian. Uh, but but uh, even under this um, work of his dad to get him out of the out of the um, academic world, he went deeper and deeper into the academic world. Uh, it was his calling. It was his passion. Um, he was zealous for learning and growing in wisdom. In 1601, uh, he received a, a fellowship at St. John's College at Cambridge. He was 18 years old at that time. And so at 18, he, w- he had a fellowship. Now, what is a fellowship? Well, he was given an apartment, uh, and it was free of charge for tutoring other students. So at 18, he's tutoring other students. As a matter of fact, uh, we know that there were five students under his charge while he was at St. John's. So he was looked at not only by his peers, but by his superiors as being a man among men. Uh, Cambridge was the foremost college of his day. And so uh, in, the Pur- in, the Puritan, in, the, in the Puritan world, it was thought of as the greatest school you could attend. He worked hard in that fellowship. He earned uh, degrees in 1602 and in 1603, uh, although he was already uh, in, uh, deep in his studies, he became a Christian in 1603. Uh, under the preaching of Paul Baines, uh, Sibbs uh, referred to Baines as his father in the gospel. And Baines was the pastor of the, of the church there at the university. Um, and <clears throat> Sibbs was then ordained into the ministry of the Church of England in 1609, I mean, excuse me, in 1608. Um, his divinity degree was earned in 1610, and from 1611 to 1616, he served as a lecturer at Holy Trinity in Cambridge. And so I tell you all this to kind of tell you, this is a man who was steeped in academic life. This is a man, and I'm trying to build you a picture of a guy here in Puritan England. You see his picture here on the front, if you, you might can see it, a rather uh, a strange looking guy. Um, and as you can see, he wore stylish clothes for his day, but you would laugh at him if you saw him in our day. But um, this is a man who, uh, and in this portrait that they paint of him, you know, like all the Puritans, he's not smiling. But one thing I notice about his painting, and, uh, and it's in stark contrast uh, 
his, this stuff I've just told you, all this about learning and all this about degrees and, and being a fellow at the university and all these things. If I don't know if you pick it up, but I pick up a glow about this man. A lot of the Puritans and a lot of the Reformed uh, uh, academics were harsh. But this is a man referred to by his peers as the affectionate theologian. All of the book learning, all of the, all the time spent in the classroom didn't harden this man. It softened him. He became softer and softer towards the Lord and softer and softer towards those who uh, he, he ministered to. During his years at Holy Trinity as a lecturer, Sibbs helped uh, turn Thomas Goodwin away from Arminianism and moved John Preston from witty preaching to plain spiritual preaching. And so uh, Thomas Goodwin is one of the famous Puritans and, uh, and, and well-recognized. And yet Sibbs influenced his life. Sibbs came to London after spending his time at Holy Trinity in 1617 and became, began to lecture at Gray's Inn, the largest of the four inns of court, which um, I know we're not familiar with all this terminology necessarily. It takes me some time to figure it all out. The, the European system of education is very different from ours. And so they have, co- they have true colleges within the university, and Gray's Inn was a court where those who were studying under, uh, for divinity degrees would come and listen to lectures. And you couldn't just come in off the street, in other words, and sit at a Gray's Inn. You had to be invited or you had to be a student. And so he's sitting among, again, I'm trying to give you this picture. He's among the elite of his day. And he's lecturing the elite of his day. And uh, this is going to really help you, I think, contrast this man and see who he was uh, when I get to the end of this talk. In 1626, he, he became the master of St. Catherine's College at Cambridge. And under his leadership, the college um, regained its former prestige. And it began to slip. Um, it graduated under his tutoring. Uh, many men graduated who were part of the Westminster Assembly, who wrote the 1646 uh, Confession of Faith. And so uh, they, shaped, they helped shape our lives. Uh, he, Sibbs, became known as the Heavenly Doctor. Uh, these phrases about him kind of tell us who he was. Because of his godly preaching and his heavenly manner of life, Isaac Walton wrote of Sibbs, Of this blessed man, let this just praise be given. Heaven was in him before he was in heaven. That's the testimony of Richard Sibbs. And I would ask you, in whatever circles you're in, is this what they would say about you? Would they say heaven was in you before you were in heaven? So all of this learning, all of this, uh, we, we have the cynical idea of education that it hardens a person and makes them unapproachable and all these things. That's just not true. It's just not true. It does not have to be that way. This was one of the most learned and academic men of his day, and yet he was referred to as the heavenly doctor and a man in which heaven had gotten inside of him before he got into heaven. In 1633, King, you know, I know uh, history may not be your subject, but in his 1633, he lived in a very contentious time. In 1633, King Charles I offered Sibs the charge of Holy Trinity, the whole of Holy Trinity at Cambridge, 
and the pulpit, more importantly. And so he continued at Gray's Inn. He continued in his work at Catherine's Hall. And he became the vicar or the pastor of Holy Trinity until he died in 1635. And I say that to say he never married. And this man remained single his whole life. Uh, and that's a good thing. Probably, if you study about him, you realize he didn't have much time for a wife. He spent all of his time in service to the Lord. Um, he wasn't required by the church to be a monk, as a matter of fact, and he wasn't a monk. But uh, So I don't want you to get the idea that he had married himself to the church in some way. But I think he was, as Paul would say, or as Jesus would say, he was a eunuch from birth. He never had relationships with women that we know of. He never had much attraction to women. Uh, no, nothing's ever said of that. Um, he seems to be wholly and completely devoted to his life in service of the kingdom. And, um, and so you may be in here, and you may be young, you may be older, you may not have a wife, you may not have a husband, you may wonder if God's forgotten about you, but it could be that God has a different plan for you. It doesn't mean that you're second best. Richard Sibbs would not have been referred to as second best uh, in his day. And yet he was single, never married. To each his own. I'm glad I'm married. <laughs> Sibbs uh, did, though, have an astonishing network of friends. You know, uh, he, and I'm just saying that to say he's not, uh, he wasn't a weirdo. He wasn't a weirdo. Uh, it wasn't that he was unsocial and that uh, he was scared of people. He had a great network of friends. In other words, and, and, and by the way, I've, I've spent um, a lot of time in the last months reading about him. It, you, you know, if you ever have a chance, you should read some of the things his friends said about him. I mean, he was really well thought of. And um, he, he, was, uh, he was quoted as saying, God, Godly friends are walking sermons. Think about that. That's how he viewed his friendships. Godly friends are like walking sermons. And isn't that true in our life? You know, a lot of the most impactful events in your life will be your friends, for good or for bad. And this is a man that understood that. Sibs was a gentleman, and uh, he avoided controversy of his day as much as he could. Uh, fractions, he said, fractions breed fractions. <laughs> His battles with the Archbishop Laud, who was over the church, Roman Catholics, Arminians, all of these were exceptions. So he was non-controversial. He was known as a conformist. In a day of Reformation, he was conforming in a sense. He was hoping the church would stay together. But he didn't run from all conflict. I don't want you to get that idea. He wasn't, he wasn't lacking courage. He stood for what he believed in. He just tried to do it in a non-contentious way, in a non-fractious way. And so um, he uh, remained close friends with many pastors, many leaders who were radical in their reforms of the Church of England. And, and yet he was also friends with people who were considered high church and and firmly in the Church of England. So he kind of had friends on both sides. And uh, like the old uh, saying from the South goes, you know, there was, a, there was a set of brothers that, you probably heard this, that refused to fight uh, in the battles uh, of the Civil War. And when the, when the, this is just a story, it's not a fact. Um, 
And so as the, the war approached their farm, they determined among themselves they would put on half a union, uh, a union soldier's uniform and half of a, of a Confederate soldier, and they would go out to the battle, and uh, they thought that would keep them safe. Instead, they got shot from both sides, right? And that sibs his life. Because he refused to take sides in the, in the arguments within the church, he got railed from both sides of the argument. He got blistered by both sides. And he stood up to it uh, and seemed to weather the storm of criticism pretty well. Sibs was an inspiration to a lot of people. He influenced Anglicans, Presbyterians, and Independents in his day and in the days to come. Um, these were the three dominant parties within the Church of England. Um, and he was a pastor of pastors. He lived the life of moderation, he's quoted as saying, Where most holiness is, there is most moderation, where it may be without prejudice of piety to God and the good of others. So that just gives us a little more into his life and his heart. The historian uh, Daniel Neal described Sibs as a celebrated preacher, an ed educated divine, and a charitable and humble man who repeatedly underestimated his gifts. Yet, Puritans everywhere recognized Sibs as Christ-centered and experiential in his preaching. As a matter of fact, to the point that he was labeled a mystic in his day. Um, thus, the term affectionate. Uh, that's, a, that's a nicer way of saying mystic. Um, he believed in real experiences with the real Jesus Christ. And he preached often from the pulpit in ways that made people uneasy. Because he talked about personal relationship as personal relationship. And, uh, and he, if you know anything about the Puritans, that was a little taboo and scary. Deep waters for them to, get, to wade out into. Um, he was both learned and unlearned. Uh, uh, excuse me. Both learned and unlearned in upper and lower classes profited from Sibs and from his preaching. Sibs wrote, to preach... To preach is to woo. The main scope of all preaching is to allure us to the entertainment of Christ's mild, safe, wise, victorious government. He brought truth home. As Robert Burns would say, to men's business and bosoms. He brought truth to men's business and their bosom. Caitlin wrote when he was talking to Sibs, No man that ever I was acquainted with got so far into my heart or lay so close therein. In our day, uh, people have written about him, just to kind of give you some more things here. His theology is thoroughly orthodox, but it is like the fuel of some great combustion engine, always passing into flame and so being converted into energy, thereby to serve God and even more to enjoy and relish God with the soul. I mean... Uh, to have somebody describe you and describe your preaching in these ways has to be amazing. David Mason, the biographer of John Milton, wrote, No writings in practical theology seem to have been so much read in the mid-17th century among the pious English middle classes as those of Sibs. He was impacting an entire nation from the university. And, you know, it's convicting for me to think about. We, as Christians, have written off the university in large part in our day as bastions of liberalism and as places to run from and we even steer our children away from public universities into Christian holy huddles 
and they give out degrees. And I don't mean to be harsh on Christian universities. I, I think they do serve a role in our society. But isn't it refreshing that this man took on the public university? And in case you think his day was different than ours, it was, it was a hard place to minister in his day also. As a matter of fact, his best friends were all fired from the university because of their stances and their beliefs and their convictions. And so um, he gives us an example of a man who was willing to go and fight the hard fight in the hard places uh, for most of his life. Sib's last sermon, um, sermons preached a week before he died, were on John 14, verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. When asked in his final day how his soul was faring, Sibs replied, I should do God much wrong if I should not say very well. And so he began his will and testament and dictated it on July the 4th, 1635. That was the day before he died. And in his closing comments, he said, I commend and bequeath my soul into the hands of my gracious Savior who hath redeemed it with most precious blood and appears now in heaven to receive it. William Googe preached Sibs' funeral and many, many were saved hearing the gospel preached at this great man's death. That's a little about the man. It's a rough sketch of his life. Um, it's by no means everything there is to say about him. I want to give you some things here that I think will give you an insight even further into who he was. <clears throat> Listen to what he says about these hot-button topics in his day and in our day. Listen to how he talked about the Lord and about the doctrines, the great doctrines of the faith. In, in reference to particular redemption, Sibs says in a sermon, um, Christ died alone and singular in respect because in him dying... All died that were his, that the Father gave him to die for. For they go in parallel, God's gift and Christ's death. In other words, on the subject of particular redemption, this is just one quote out of many that I read where he's very specific. That Christ's sacrifice was for the elect. He died for his people. He didn't die to potentially ransom some people out there who would maybe believe in him. He died to save those who God had given him. Election, another hot-button topic in his day and ours. He said, listen to this, to be elect means to be God's. This world taken out of the world, the world of the elect is composed of people who are specially favored. Those God calls his best friends. They are God's before ever they respond to the ministry of the word. When he preached on uh, election, um, he preached on it not from a hard, um, academic, uh, haughty, arrogant way. Even his opponents, when they heard him preach on election, were persuaded by his affection, his love. He often referred to God's elect as God's best friends. And that was the kind of affection that uh, he presented that I think is very biblical in regards to election. <coughs> covenant, the covenant of grace. He was a covenant theologian. 
although in his day that was unpopular and still in our day, a lot of people have a lot of questions about covenant uh, theology. Listen to what he says about the covenant of grace. See if this doesn't strike with you as it did with me. Relationally stated, the fundamental and principal favor of the covenant of grace was to have God for your God. To enter into terms of friendship with God. To know God as Father and to love and be loved by God. I mean, we might could quibble and debate about covenant theology, but I don't know any Christian that wants to argue that quote. I mean, isn't that what you want? Isn't that what you see in the Scripture? Is that we have been brought into an agreement, a covenant, whereby we're God's, we're God's friend now. We are God's children. We are, we are favored and loved by Him. Conversion. Uh, this, is one of my, this is probably my favorite quote. Conversion. And, you know, people debate it even today, don't they? Well, did I choose God or did God choose me? Listen to what he says. Grace is irresistible. As the minister speaks to the ear, Christ speaks, opens, unlocks the heart at the same time. And gives it power to open. Not from the heart itself, but from Christ. The manner of working of the reasonable creature is to work freely by sweet conversion. He doth in a sweet manner, though it be mighty for the efficaciousness of it. Maybe that was uh, hard for you. Listen to this quote. God uh, knows we have nothing of ourselves. Therefore, in the covenant of grace, he requires no more than he gives. And gives what he requires and accepts what he gives. Sounds like Augustine, doesn't it? Listen to this quote about conversion. We are able to do. But the strength and the grace and the ability is from Christ. A wind instrument sounds. But the man makes it sound by his breath. We are like wind instruments. Indeed, we sound. But no far further than we are blown upon. And we yield to music. But no further than we are touched by the Spirit of God. I don't know of a better way... In 1630 that you could have described conversion. Or in 2009. We're like wind instruments. Isn't that a beautiful picture? The instrument has all the construction to make a sound. But it can't make a sound until a man picks it up and blows on it. And that's how he described it. Preaching. When he was talking about preaching. He said, hearing begets seeing in religion. In his day, it was popular to refer to Christianity this way as religion. So don't let that throw you off. He's talking about Christianity. Hearing begets seeing in religion. Now, this is, this is just a picture into the common yet profound mind of Richard Sibbs. Listen to how he talks about it. Death came in by the ear at first. Adam hearing the serpent that he should not have heard. Death came in by the ear. So life comes in by the ear. Preaching, he says, is the chariot that carries Christ up and down the world. Christ does not profit, but as he is preached. 
And I save that quote because in our day, so many people talk about, well, preaching, you know, what's so great about preaching? And why do we spend our time preaching? And, you know, my kids don't understand preaching. And uh, the preacher preaches too hard. He preaches over my ear, over my ability to understand. And we, we have a very critical and hard nature towards preaching. Well, we might, we, we might ought to stop and think. When he said this, he was preaching on Romans 10. You know, Romans 10 is famous for verses 9 and 11 and 13. You know, that you believe with your heart and you confess with your mouth. And, and whosoever believes or whosoever confesses will be saved. But they usually stop there. If you've got your Bible, <clears throat> won't you turn to Romans 10? Because this... This passage is where that quote comes from. He was preaching on that passage when he said that. And listen to what God says. If you don't believe Richard Sibbs in regard to preaching, listen to what God says about preaching. He says in verse 14, But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so, in preaching on this text, he makes the point about preaching. But I want to go a step further, because he does in his sermon, and I didn't quote this part, but he, in this sermon on preaching, says, the preaching which we receive on the Lord's day is to inspire our preaching every day. See, rather than turn it into a pulpit activity only, Sibs was all about his preaching inspiring you to preach. Because you can have beautiful feet and you can preach the gospel. But the churches which are preaching the gospel, that are preaching the gospel best, are churches that are receiving the best in preaching. Or it should be that way, shouldn't it? It should be a great conviction to us that uh, we uh, revere and love great preaching and do nothing to preach the gospel as individuals. And so this is a little peek into Sibs and his mind and the way he was able to uh, turn a phrase and teach a truth. Richard Baxter, another of the great um, Puritans, he wrote The Reformed Preacher. And uh, that had nothing to do with the Reformation. That was about having a Reformed life. But Baxter said that God used the reading of uh, the treatise or the work known as the bruised reed for his own conversion. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the prince of preachers in his day, said this, I shall never cease to be grateful for Richard Sibbs, who was balm to my soul at a period in my life when I was overworked and badly overtired and therefore subject in an unusual manner to the onslaughts of the devil, I found at that time that Richard Sibbs, 
who was known in London in the early 17th century as the heavenly Dr. Sibbs, was an unfailing remedy to my soul. The bruised reed, quieted, soothed, comforted, encouraged, and healed me. Now, this bruised reed, which we're going to spend some time with in the next hour, just uh, in way of commercial, <laughs> and then also, hopefully, that encourage you to read the whole of the book. Um, this, this was, a, as I said earlier, a 12-sermon series on Matthew 12, 18 through 20. The quote from Isaiah, The bruised reed he shall not break, and the smoking flax he shall not quench. And he preached 12 weeks on that verse. And um, as I said, he preached on average an hour and 20 minutes when he preached. And so some of his sermons in that series are much longer. They look like they're probably two hours. And um, so he spent a lot of time on this text. <clears throat> he preached all these years. And, and in his day, preachers didn't preach once or twice a week. They preached five and six times a week sometimes. And yet, the bruised reed, the bruised reed is the only sermon series that he took and edited and put in book form and published himself. It's the only one. Um, now there's seven volumes of Richard Sibbs' preaching and his few writings. He didn't write a ton outside of his preaching. But he only chose one sermon series. And I've I've thought about that over the last weeks as I've read some of his other sermons, which I think are astounding. All of them are great. How did he choose out this 12 sermon series? What was it about this sermon series? And all I can say is, one, come back and hear a taste of it. And uh, I, I won't have the English brogue, so it won't be as beautiful as he was probably when he delivered it. But uh, <clears throat> come back and hear a taste of it. I think you'll see. The power of this sermon series is the pictures he draws with his words to bring out the meaning of the Bible, the meaning of the text. And it was a, it is a sermon series, obviously, as you can tell by the title, The Bruised Reed, that was two things. One, it was a conviction to you if you were not bruised and caused you to think, why has God not disciplined me? And second, it was a bomb for people who were under the bruising of God. God seemed to be lash after lash pouring his discipline into their life. And then, so it was a, a bomb, a, a help to their soul to say, this isn't from a tyrant in heaven who's unmerciful. This is from a father who loves you. And um, so it was popular immediately. And it, was, uh, and it has been well read throughout the years. This is just a little bit of Richard Sibbs. There's, there's so much more. Um, man, I've uh, enjoyed, I don't know if any of you will be encouraged by this this morning, but I was encouraged from doing the study. <clears throat> and uh, I do, again, although I said it was hard to read, and it is, um, I do think, you know, Dever does a, a fabulous job. Of all of the biographies, this is the best, I think, in, on the market. So if you're going to read about him, read it from here and then read him. Of course, that's the ultimate, isn't it? Seven volumes, though. So I don't know how many of you want to read seven volumes, mostly of sermons. <laughs> Any questions?